I would take you, uh, encourage you to keep your Bibles there in uh, Luke chapter 14. That's where we're going to be spending some time this morning. Several years ago, well, it actually goes beyond that. When Charlene and I moved here, and it's kind of my issue more than hers. You see, I grew up in Salina, Kansas. Uh, Salina, Kansas was known as the big city in the region where it was at a whopping 40,000 and all the farmers would come in. So, you know, I grew up kind of rural, came to Chicago for three years. And then we went to Warsaw, Indiana for 15 years, rural again. Finally, we came back up here and had to start learning how to live in a suburban life, uh, one of the things that shocked one of our friends is we didn't have an answering machine. And she said, you know, here in the suburbs of Chicago, if you don't have an answering machine, it's considered rude. I went, who wouldn't want to hear this voice? But, but her, she said, because people value their time. And they don't want to have to call you again unless uh, if they can just leave a message. Oh, we went and got ourselves an answering machine. We didn't know. We were hicks from the sticks. We didn't know. It was several years later, I ran across a book by uh, Dr. Albert Shee. And if you're interested in books, the name of the book is called The Suburban Christian, Finding Spiritual Vitality in the Land of Plenty. So if you want to look that up on Amazon, uh, Albert Xi's last name is spelled H-S-U. He's Chinese-American. And it was a very interesting read, and it really helped me start to get a handle on what it means to live a, a suburban lifestyle. Uh, his conclusion, if I would very simply state it, was if we believe God has placed us in this particular place in our suburban communities, then we should strive to do everything we can to be, to be Christ-like in the community where God has placed us. And not to just kind of push it all away. How do I live Christ in a community that's very materialistic? How do I do that? Uh, one observation that he and his wife wrestled with, because they actually live in the western suburbs of Chicago, was the idea of maybe we could sell our house in our suburban community and move a little further west. And by moving further west, we would save money on taxes. We could get a little bigger place to live. We would have a quieter community. And as they thought about that, getting away from the hustle and bustle and all that, they realized, but there would be some losses. There would be some cost to this move. One of the costs would be more time commuting to your job that was closer to the city. This was pre-pandemic. Nobody even knew. When we thought of Zoom, we thought of an airplane flying across the sky. You know, he said, but it would be giving up a lot of time with family spent in commuting and the wear and tear on a vehicle and all of that. And they went through the loss of their church family and having to try to start over that and the community that they had built and the neighbors that they had built relationships with. And they realized that if they counted the cost, it was better to stay where they were than to try to exit and go further west. 
In our lengthy passage today, and we're going to, you know, last week was a short passage. This one's a long passage. Short passages mean really long sermons. Long passages, not as long. Uh, in, in our lengthy passage today, we come to, we're going to come to a conclusion. We're going to come to the conclusion of what does it mean? What does it mean to, to count the cost in following Jesus? Uh, and and the, really the question comes down to, what do I give up in comparison to what I gain for eternity? But to get there, we've got to go through some things. You see, in this process, we're going to see two lengthy parables and some conclusions that I think are going to be an encouragement to us and a challenge to us. The scene that we have that Bill just and Leela just read for us is very familiar. Jesus is at a Pharisee's house for dinner. It wasn't uncommon after a morning at the synagogue on the Sabbath to return to a meal. Uh, And so Jesus is at a meal at the Pharisee's house. Now, a question comes to my mind, which maybe I'll get answered someday in eternity. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about what the Sabbath was about. Remember that? And we talked about how the Pharisees said you should never do work on the Sabbath. And my question is, okay, who prepared the meal? You know, this wasn't like you pull a few things out and throw them in the microwave. Who prepared the meal? And and that's the problem with the pharisaical authoritarian legalism. The one who makes up the rules also makes up the loopholes. So Jesus is at this meal. And and you got to remember, rarely did people, especially Pharisees, have Jesus over just to hang out and get to know him. There was always an agenda. And there was an agenda. There's something else, and I know we've talked about this before. At some of those meals, it was kind of a public thing. Yes, there were the, the important people sitting down at the table eating. Other people got to stand around and watch. Wouldn't you enjoy that? You have a meal and you got people hanging around just kind of watching what you eat. And at this meal, uh, there in front of him, as if he's been brought in for this purpose, is a man suffering from some sort of abdominal swelling in his body. And Jesus knows he's being set up. Jesus takes the bait because he knows what he's going to do. And so he asked the question, and this was so rabbinical. He has these Pharisees and these experts in the law, and he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? That question has put them in a bind. You see, if they say, no, it's not lawful, well, then they look like they are totally uncompassionate. They have no compassion, that God has no compassion. But if they say, yes, it is lawful, then they look like they're being hypocrites because they would say, no, it's not, and they're, they're in a box. And so they finally do something that shows a tad bit of wisdom. They say nothing. So what does Jesus do? He heals the man, and he sends him on, the, on his way. That man wasn't there to be part of the meal. He wasn't there out of the graciousness of the Pharisee to give him some food because maybe he had such a, whatever he had uh, kept him from working. He was there to test Jesus. 
Jesus heals him and sends him on his way. They're fuming. You know they are based on our passage from last week. So Jesus asks another rabbinical question. He says, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Now, you and I know the answer to that question. You have a child that somehow falls into the well on the Sabbath day. You're not going to go, hey, uh, hang out. Here's a sandwich. We'll get you tomorrow. (laughs) No, you're going to do everything you can. You're going to bring ropes. You're going to call friends. You're going to get that child out. If you have an ox that's that's important to your your well-being, and this is the ox that plows your fields because your crops, and that ox happens to fall into a well, and that's got to be a great big well. But uh, you're going to get that animal out, so that, you know that's what you're going to do. They have nothing to say. They won't answer. They know that they're living in contradiction. And that brings us to what I believe are the first of five lunch lessons that we're going to learn since this was a lunch. And, and the first lesson is simply this. It's so basic. God's heart is one of compassion. God is a God of compassion. God is a God who cares. His heart is that of compassion. As we've stated in the past, the, the Pharisees, they weren't, they weren't known for their compassion. They were known for wanting to be seen. They wanted people to see their righteousness. And and what God wants us to see is we know his righteousness. He also wants us to see his compassion. The Pharisees wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be honored. They wanted to be seen as they walked down the streets. They could justify this by saying we're just simply being examples to the people so that they can see what it looks like to live a perfectly righteous life before God, making no mistakes, no errors, just living before him in complete righteousness. And so Jesus addresses that. He says, because he noticed as they came in, he noticed them all picking their places. Oh, probably even a little elbows being thrown there to get to the place of honor. And he says this, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. So if the host who invited both both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat, then you're going to be humiliated. You've taken the, you have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus says, look, you're invited to a wedding. If you've ever planned a wedding, you know the most stressful part of the planning is the seating chart at the reception. Am I right? Because we can't have Aunt June sitting next to Cousin Jake. That's going to be a disaster. That will just, the thing will blow up in our face. And so, but we can't have Cousin Jake sitting next to Uncle Bob because that's going to be a disaster. And Uncle Bob doesn't like Aunt June anymore. And you're, it's like playing chess. You're moving people around. 
Jesus, you know, but they didn't have seating charts in the first century. There weren't name tags. You simply come in and you determine your place of importance and you sit at the place. You wanted to get the seat closest to the head table. The people close, and and they weren't chairs and tables. It was more uh, a couch that you recline on, but you wanted the place closest to the head table. Not that anybody would ever do that in a 21st century wedding, but it happened in the first century. So what happens if the host comes in with a very distinguished guest and the host is escorting their guests to the most important table and there I am. And he says, hopefully discreetly, um, Pastor Scott, we had a seat reserved for you. It's in the back behind the pole next to the kitchen that's that you know and i could get all humpy and say hey dude if i don't sign that license your kids aren't married you know and hey if i don't send it in in 10 days this wedding did not exist hey i am somebody no you're you're back there and yes you will sign it because i ain't writing you a check if you don't so i win jesus makes the point if you go to some place don't Think you're the best. Pharisee, Christian, humble yourself. Let them exalt you. Let them bring you up. But I think Jesus is making a a more important point here than weddings. He's talking about God's kingdom. He's talking about kingdom values. Uh, Remember, he's writing to a recipient named Theophilus, who was a Roman official. And the Roman system was a system of classism. And I think there's an application for us even today. And it's simply this. Our second lunch lesson is this. When we are impressed with ourselves, God isn't. God is not impressed with me when I am impressed with me. When I think I'm going to move myself up some ladder, God's not impressed. Here's what I mean. We find repeatedly in God's word reminders to humble ourselves. Proverbs 25, 6 and 7 could have very possibly been on Jesus' mind that day. It reads this, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king. Do not claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to say to you, Come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. You see, when you and I exalt ourselves at the cost of others, the biblical principle is we have what we want, noticed by others, but we don't have God's favor. In fact, Peter, I think, learned the lesson because later on, Peter would allude to that Proverbs passage and to another one when he would write, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. This is not just a rebuke to religious leaders. I think it's a reminder to all of us of the value and the power of living humbly. God will exalt us. God will lift us up in his time and in his way. And then Jesus does something else. He turns to the host and he challenges him. He says, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and then you're repaid. 
But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus challenges the host. He says, why don't you throw a dinner party for people who can't pay you back? A party for those who, in essence, are already dependent upon you. Why not trust God to make up what it would cost you? You see, there is no eternal kingdom value in focusing on those who can repay my kindness. That's not grace. It's called a transaction. True grace that the Father's bestowed on us through Jesus is something that we can't repay. I can never repay God's grace. We've been, we practice ahead for stuff. In a couple weeks, we're going to be singing that great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. I can't repay that grace. It's a price far greater than I can pay. The true grace is something that we can only do by accepting it with humility. Lesson number three. Godlike kindness is best expressed to those who can't repay the favor. When I express grace and kindness in someone else's life and I know they can't you know, express, repay it, they, you know, I'll have you over dinner, you have me over dinner. When I just, it's, and I've been the recipient, and I bet you've been the recipient of someone else's grace, someone else's kindness, and, and you can never repay it. You just have to accept it. And, and that's what it means to, to ex- receive and to express God-like kindness. We do it to those who can't repay the favor. Now, we're still at the luncheon. You know how it goes at mealtimes, right? Uh, conversations around the table can be a, a bit random. They can go in a lot of different directions. And so another person speaks up. That's in verse 15. He says this, When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I think he said it just that way. What he's doing there is uttering what we call the humble brag. A humble brag, well, here's a humble brag. Oh, I am so sorry I have to miss your graduation party so that I can go and receive the Nobel Peace Prize. That's the humble brag. The humble brag, would you pray for us that we would be good stewards of all the money we saved for our son's tuition now that he has a full-ride scholarship to Harvard? Humble brag trying to humble myself, but I really want you to go, ooh. So there's the humble brag, blessed is the one, me, who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And that brings about another parable. Now, first thing we need to know about this second parable is that uh, it's about a banquet that was invitation only. Jesus says there was this wealthy man. He was preparing a banquet and he invited many guests. So basically what happened is he knew the banquet was coming. He sent the save the date cards out. You know, everybody that was invited got that save the date thing. You've probably gotten those. We have a couple stacked on our refrigerator right now. Save the date, you know, and and so, okay, we got to set this aside. This is an important event. 
Well, it took time to get those feasts ready. So on the day that the feast was ready, he sends his servant out to the people who had gotten the save the date notices and the invitations. And, and by the way, it was an affront to not respond and attend a banquet, especially when you were invited and especially when the person inviting you was quite wealthy. So he sends his servants out and they get excuses. And I want you to think about the flimsy nature of these excuses. So they said, come now for everything is ready. Remember, that banquet was fresh. It was prepared. The bread had just come out of the oven. The fatted calf had just come off the spit. The, the food was ready. The vegetables are steaming. It's time to come. And the first person says, oh, well, I just bought a field. I have to go examine it. Okay, let's put that in a 21st century context. That would be like saying, oh, we just closed on a house yesterday. We're going to go inspect it now. What? No, no. You do the inspections first. Then you go close on the house. Oh, the next guy's even better. I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Really? I just bought a brand new car. I'm going to go out and give it a test drive. Yeah, I signed on it. I signed on all the papers. I've already paid for it. Now I'm going to go give it a test drive. No. You try the oxen out first. And then, and that's five yoke is 10 oxen. You better take a few people with you. You got to find out if they pull together. You got to find out if they work together. You do that, then you pay for them. The third one, I just got married, so I can't come. What? You don't eat? <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't come to a, a, a banquet. You knew you were getting married when you got the save the date card, didn't you? The servant comes back, he reports this to the master, and the master is not happy. In fact, he's angry. And, and, and many scholars believe this parable kind of leans toward God being the one hosting the banquet. And basically it's like, you know, if you don't have a relationship with the Father through the Son, you may not recognize the invitation when it comes. Oh, that's spam. Delete. That's not the real, that's not, God really doesn't want me here. So what does this guy do? He goes out and he says, go out and bring, quickly, I mean, food's getting cold. Go out quickly into the streets, the alleys, the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And they go and they do that. And the servant comes back, he goes, we've done that, there's still room. The master says, go out in the roads and the country and in the country land, uh, lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited get a taste at my banquet. Notice how Jesus ends that by personalizing it. Get it, get a taste at my banquet. And throughout Luke, what we found is Jesus inviting, inviting all to become part of the kingdom of God, inviting people to follow God, to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, to love their neighbors themselves. Jesus, throughout Luke, has shown the grace of God. He's pointed clearly to the fact that the kingdom of heaven is built on a relationship with the Father through the Son. But... Those who already think they are religious, those who already in their, pri in their pride believe they are following the right rules, that they have 
not only made up those rules that they're following, they enforce them and they have the loopholes, they've decided in their misguided pride that they are automatically included in the banquet. I don't need a save-the-date card because I am the save-the-date card. I don't need an invitation because I am the invitation. And they're actually, by their selfishness and their religious arrogance, choosing to see the invitation of Jesus as junk mail to be deleted. And that leads us to our fourth lunch lesson of the day. Personal pride always gets in the way of humble faith. God has shown us kindness as we look at the whole of the Scripture. And and the only way to respond to his kindness, his invitation, as it were, is humble faith. You know, we all come from various backgrounds and experiences. As you know, I was a pastor's kid. I was, I've been in the church since roughly February 18th, 1959. Six days after I was born, I was in church at a Wednesday night prayer meeting. I could very easily, in fact, Maybe it had been on a trajectory of a Pharisee. I have religious background and heritage. By the time I was 12, I thought I knew everything there was in the Bible. Now that I'm a little older than 12, I realize how little I know still. And I've got a Bible college degree and two seminary degrees and postgraduate degree, and I'm still figuring it out. Surely I got that made, right? I've got all the education. I've got the background. I've got the heritage. I've got the life. Uh, I was baptized when I was nine years old after I had received Christ. I never, well, I didn't always get caught, but I didn't get in much trouble because I found ways to sneak around, which that's called deceit, kids. Don't do it. But it was all about me. You see, I had to come to the same conclusion God wants us all to come from. It's best stated by the prophet Isaiah. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. You see, the fact is, I could go through all that stuff and have all these papers on my wall. I got ordinated in 1986, you know, where the bunch of guys said, yeah, you're, you can be a pastor. None of that matters. None of that matters at the cross. At the cross, I bring my sin-stained self. And in humility, I say, here I am, Lord. I am nothing but an unworthy, sinful person who needs your salvation, who needs your grace. The invitation to enter the relationship with the Father through Jesus is available to all of us, and it puts all of us on level ground. But personal pride gets in the way of humble faith. Now, it's very possible that the lunch ended right there. And yet, I think Luke gives us this last little vignette to kind of help draw this chapter, this section. Chapters and verse headings are, you know, they're not inspired. But this section kind of comes to a conclusion. Because now Jesus is with the crowds. And and, and he turns to them and he says this. If anyone, I'm in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, 
This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming him with 20,000 men? If he's not able, he will send a delegation with the others while the other is still a long way off and he'll ask for terms of peace. In the same, of you, same way, those of you who do not give everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let me give you the lesson, then I'll explain it. Like every worthwhile endeavor, following Jesus comes at a cost. That's the point he's making. You know, as of today, and I checked it, the Summer Olympics are still scheduled for Tokyo. When you consider Olympic athletes, you have to consider first and foremost all they give up to get to where they are. Consider the cost the hours and hours and hours spent in practice, the money spent to hire the best coaches, the pain of working out and training and training and working out, of just pushing yourself to the limit, the loss of social life. A lot of these athletes, they start as young people, as children, and they give up all kinds of social life And eventually they get chosen by their nation to represent their nation at the Olympics. And only three people get recognized when it's all over. The gold medalist, the silver medalist, and the bronze medalist. Every endeavor comes at a cost. Jesus said, I want you to know the invitation to follow me is the invitation is free. The acceptance of the invitation is free, but it's not a free ride. You know, one of the errors I think we make sometimes in evangelism is we say, if you pray this prayer, you get to go to heaven. No, if you pray this prayer, you get to start a life with Jesus. And yeah, heaven might be down the road a ways, but you start a life of Jesus that sometimes is going to mean sacrifice. Sometimes there's going to be a cost. Sometimes you're going to have to make hard decisions. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing, as it were, to put all of your human relationships on the back shelf. Don't look at the hyperbole of hate and think, well, I could never do that. I can't hate my kids. Are you kidding? I love my kids. I love my grandkids. I love Charlene's grandkids, too. You know, we love our grandkids. We love our kids. We do anything for them. But, and this isn't happening, but if, if, if God spoke to me and Charlene and said, I want you to move to Nome, Alaska and take the Nome, Alaska Community Church, first there would be a lot of prayer on that, but if we knew that was God's call and all of our kids are here, we'd be at Nome, Alaska. I mean, when we lived in Indiana, we did not have family around we, were, we had to learn to come up with family traditions. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you're not willing to put all of those relationships on the back burner, then you're not going to follow me because there's going to be something always in the way. He said, you carry your cross. In that culture, 
carrying a cross meant only one thing, that you had been condemned to die. And the point that Jesus is saying is, are you willing to die to self to serve me? Are you willing to put your life on hold, if as it were, to serve me? So he says, let me, he builds it out. He talks about this building project. This guy enters this building project, but he doesn't plan very well. And he runs out of money. And boy, what's the reputation? Not going to trust him with the big projects. He doesn't plan well. Or this king finds that the only solution is to go to war. And when he sizes up his military and the enemy's military, he realizes we're going to get pasted. He's going to take over. And so he goes and he says, let's, let's work this out, can't we? Can, we? can we all get along? Discipleship is defined as following Jesus wholeheartedly. You can't half-baked follow Jesus. You've got to be all in. And, and Jesus said, if you're going to be half-baked, you run the risk of being ineffective. It is believed that probably Jesus is looking at maybe salt that came from the Dead Sea region here. And, and that salt would lose its potency after a while. And once it lost its potency, it was not useful for anything. The reminder is commitment. Discipleship is not a, a partial following of Jesus. It's all in. Discipleship is is not necessarily becoming a vocational Christian worker. I am not a better disciple than anyone else because I'm a pastor. That's not the point. The point is, follow Jesus. I started making a list of people I know who follow Jesus, not names, but professions. I've known business people, ranchers, attorneys, first responders, real estate agents, factory workers, trade peoples. My dad even had a friend who started several churches and he worked for the IRS. Somebody who works for the IRS can still follow Jesus. That blew my mind as a kid. They have all been examples to me of all-out commitment in following Jesus. What set them apart was not their profession. What set them apart was that they understood My identity and my commitment is to Jesus. Wherever he takes me, my profession is just the way he's helping me put food on the table. Let me finish with a story. Many years ago, uh, we used a a small booklet. It was entitled Basics for Believers. It's actually still out there on Amazon. It was a booklet that was designed to help new people, new Christ followers, know what it meant to be able to follow Jesus. The author was a man by the name of Irving Larson. Uh, Irving Larson worked for the DuPont Company in Niagara, New York. And he was good at what he did. And he was moving up the ladder quite a bit. At one point in his career, he was offered a major promotion. It was going to come with a huge bump in salary, It was going to come with a signing bonus. It was going to come with stock options. He would be set for life. That bonus, that job promotion, yes, always had more responsibility, 
But that responsibility involved more travel, international travel. That responsibility involved more time at the office. That responsibility would mean less time at home. And most importantly for him, it would mean less time in ministry at his church. You see, Irving Larson's little booklet grew out of a class that he taught. Every week, every quarter in Sunday school, he taught this class, Basics for Believers. He loved teaching that class, and the material was starting to pile up. He was starting to develop it. And to the chagrin of everybody in the corporate world, he turned the promotion down. And that came at the cost of never getting another promotion offer. He counted the cost. And the body of Christ was blessed. Our church wasn't the only church that used that. Churches all over the country used that. And you know how I learned that story? Because our church took on his son as a missionary. His son was working for international students, the same ministry that our Tim and Julie Sigmund worked for. And we took them on, and that's where I learned that story. Those five lessons that you have, maybe you wrote them down. They may look disjointed, but I don't think they're as disjointed as they look. So let me put them together in a summary statement. God in his grace shows each of us compassion and he wants us to treat others the same way, especially those who could never repay us. That calls for humility on our part so that we can, by faith, see what God has done for us and make an all-out commitment to follow him regardless the personal cost. That's a long sentence. I can email it to you later. But I want you just to remember this. This morning, give careful thought to how you are following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It does pull us up short. It should. Your word is defined as a a sword that pierces to the depths of who we are. May we give careful thought to how we follow you, not just today, but each day this week as we move on through the life that we have and through the things that you have already planned for us. In Jesus' name, amen.